This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Do you believe in miracles? Well, 60 Minutes traveled to the sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes in southern France, where 70 medical miracles have been recognized by the Catholic Church over 160 years. And tonight, you'll hear a miracle story and from the renowned doctors and researchers who investigated it. That's a 60 Minutes promo for an episode on investigating medically unexplained cures at the sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes in France. Why 60 Minutes doing a story on miracles in France? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So what makes this 60 Minutes story so unusual? Well, I think the main thing we get here is the voices of people, and we get the voices of Catholic believers of several different kinds, and people who would say... This is kind of the subject that looms in the background. People would who would say they've experienced several different things that might be called miracles in their lives. Then at the same time, we get to hear from scientists who are openly identified as Catholics, but scientists at two different levels of investigation and skepticism who in an oh-so-Roman Catholic way we're familiar with this when we hear about investigations into whether someone is a saint or not. We hear from these people whose job it is to filter and filter and filter the information about cases of quote-unquote miracles until finally the Roman Catholic Church as an official body will stand up and say this is a miracle. This is a miracle that took place at a particular time in a particular zip code called Lords, and we will stand by that. And if any scientist wants to come by, we will gladly pull the 10-pound file of x-rays and other medical evidence related to this, and anybody that wants to can look at it. So there's several layers to what I just said, but we see all of that in this CBS 60 Minutes report. Now, I think you can be a little bit cynical and say one of the reasons that this report exists is that it has great visuals and it has great human faces and voices and it's a great TV story. There is an online version of the story in which you basically have transcripts and you have a chance to peruse some of this information more carefully. But it's a great TV story. But that still doesn't mean that they had to tell it. And I, I think our listeners will enjoy watching, once we get this up at Get Religion and at TMAT.net, I think they would enjoy watching the actual CBS broadcast itself and uh, and kind of digging into it because there are 
fascinating journalism issues in here as well as faith-based questions, answers, and issues. Okay, uh, you explained why it's kind of a made-for-television, it's got great visuals, it's got faces, then human stories. But other than that, what do you think? Why 60 Minutes decided to cover this? This would be, you know, something I could see the the European press covering, but not as a, a major story on what is supposed to be, for CBS, their major deep dive forum. Well, I mean, I can give you a two-level answer again. You can say cynically that Catholicism is the largest form of Christianity in the world, and so there's automatically potential viewership for this. The second thing I would say, though, and this is not cynical at all, this is practical. The Catholic Church decided to cooperate with this story and put people in a position where the press had a chance to talk to them. And I can't stress too much that all religious organizations need to have some sort of structure, this all the way from the local church to the national denomination or global denomination, you need to have some sort of thought through policy in which you make your best voices available to the press for interviews. And quite frankly, there are many religious groups that don't want to do that because they don't want the questions. It takes a certain degree of confidence to put people in front of 60-minute microphones and have them take tough questions and answer them. This is another case, however, where I think it would be wise, if you go into this process, for the church itself to say, oh, by the way, we would like to audio record these interviews for ourselves, and we would like to retain rights to post transcripts of these interviews as a part of our cooperative effort with you so that our people can see the interviews for themselves, the questions that were asked, and how this actually went down. That's kind of a coin with two sides, isn't it? One is trust and availability, and the other is a kind of mild distrust that says, in the Internet age, why not record it? Why not post a transcript? What does the press have to hide as well as the church? What was the tone of the story on 60 Minutes? Oh, very respectful. You have to go into a, a situation with the Roman Catholic Church authorities to some degree with a basic kind of seriousness and respect. And I can honestly say you that Sister Bernadette, I believe she's 83 years old or 81 years old, the, the nun whose story, her own personal miracle story, is at the heart of this report. I think it would be impossible to sit down with that woman and not feel a degree of respect and to some degree awe when she starts showing you the braces that were holding her body up and you see the video of her in a wheelchair with her lower body twisted and everything. And now you, you're walking through a garden with her, and she is healed. And then you're handed, like I said, 10 pounds of information to flip through, if you wish, with the x-rays and the charts and the blood work and the psychological reports and everything. It's an amazing story, and it deserved respect and 
I think viewers would agree that it got respect. Now, you do have the occasional bite of language that kind of makes you kind of go, ha that's kind of weird, like when it refers to according to Catholic lore, L-O-R-E. Now, if you, you look up lore in the dictionary, it kind of says like mythology or story or whatever. And so the, the basic idea of the vision of Our Lady at Lourdes is treated as kind of, well, how in the heck would we verify that other than what has happened since then? And this once again gets us into something the story on one level takes on head on, but I think they, they could have gone further, and that is what do people mean when they use the term miracle? Because I think there are several levels of debate about that term that are kind of hinted at in the story. And it's 13 minutes long. I mean, they don't have forever. But they could have gone a little bit deeper because people, frankly, use the term miracle in different ways. I once had a kind of a a unit of a theology class long ago in grad school where we were exposed to a series of different definitions of miracle and how these are used in the Bible and how they are used in church tradition and how they are used by secular people and skeptics. And it kind of helps to know what you're claiming when you use that term. What in particular stood out to you in the 60 Minutes piece? Well, I mean, when you're introduced to the scientist, there's a key moment when it says that the Catholic Church, for the purpose of investigating the thousands of claims of miracles at Lourdes, the long lines of crutches that have been thrown away by people there when they say they're healed, etc., the main doctor being interviewed says that there's a seven part test that they apply to any claim of a miracle at Lourdes. And I could just read this from the transcript. He says, we're looking for a diagnosis. That's number one. If that diagnosis is a diagnosis of a severe disease, that's number two. We're not talking about curing the common cold here. With three, severe prognosis. Not just a severe prognosis of what's ahead. And then we want to make sure that the person is a person that was cured in the way that one could say, this is the fourth one, suddenly in an instantaneous way, not some sort of gradual, they got better, in, quote, the fifth term, a complete way, in a way, six, that's lasting in time. And then he says, my seventh criteria that has to match is that there must be no possible explanation for that cure. So that's a pretty strong test and clearly leads to one definition of a miracle, which back in that class I took long ago is they're claiming an outright violation of natural law. There is no natural scientific explanation for what happened. And that's a very high bar to clear which is why they have, out of thousands of claims over 160 years, the Catholic Church has recognized 70 official miracles at Lourdes, things that meet every one of these tests, including the case of Sister Bernadette, who we're told is the official 70th 
770, the 70th miracle of Lourdes. Was there an attempt to, I, I'm just think, listening to you and thinking, you know, there, there's a whole wing of Christianity, especially in America, and actually we might even say maybe even the majority of non-Catholic and Orthodox Christians, especially in the Southern Hemisphere, for which a miracle claimed is a miracle verified. This is strong contrast. It sounds like a very rigorous way of confirming oh, yeah. the miraculous in this context. Well, see, that's where we really needed to get into a discussion of how people use the term miracle. And I wrote myself up a list. I mean, I didn't dig back into my boxes of graduate school notebooks to pull out something from that class. But I have a decent memory still as I approach 70. And I wrote out some of them, which kind of overlap. You have people that just use the term, any work of God is a miracle. And that's as far as they're willing to go. In Orthodoxy, we use the term mystery a lot. I wrote last week in my national column about a strange little miracle in which at Theophany a decade ago, a man came in and he had a half full bottle of holy water that he needed to put the holy water from last year somewhere so he could refill his bottle with fresh holy water from this year's theophany service, something we do every year, asking God to bless the water, and that water is then used as holy water in the congregation. The Orthodox also go out and bless entire lakes and rivers and oceans. But he took this bottle of water and he poured it into a vase. There were two bouquets of cut flowers in two identical vases at the front of the sanctuary. And it was an appropriate thing to have the water go back into nature since it had been blessed. And he just poured it in the vase. And he came back the next week and to his surprise discovered that one vase of flowers was still perfectly fresh and the other was dried and withered. And the one that was fresh was the one he put the holy water in. Well, that's strange. He came back the next week and the flowers were still fresh. At this point, the church begins taking pictures and watching this. And the flowers stayed fresh for eight weeks before they finally dried, at which point the church buried them respectfully, like in a flower garden where they would go back into nature. And they considered those flowers to have been blessed by God. The pastor called it a love note from God. God sent us a bouquet to remind us he was there. Okay, is that a miracle? In what sense is it a miracle? Well, it's not a violation of natural law for flowers to stay fresh a fairly long time. And who was to say why one set of flowers dried and the other didn't? Maybe there was a natural explanation for it. And the Orthodox didn't call out a bank of scientists to investigate these flowers. They just accepted it as a kind of, which is the term the Orthodox would use, a sacramental mystery that blessed water seemed to have kept these flowers fresh. Well, in what sense is that a miracle? Well, some people would say there are miracles of things that are of natural causes, but then there's the issue of timing. I've had one or two things happen in my own life that are downright impossible to explain in terms of timing. Things that happened like I prayed about something and it turned out that two hours before that prayer, something happened three time zones away that would appear to have been a direct answer to that prayer. 
Well, is that a violation of natural law? No. Is it a matter of timing? At which point a lot of Christians would say, okay, what are the odds of that? What are the odds of that happening without it being a work of God? There are plenty of cases that don't fit the Lord's definition that are simply spontaneous remissions. You hear about this quite frequently with cancer patients where the doctors may not have any concrete answer for why a person experienced a remission at the time they did. In the life of C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman, you have a remission seemingly in response to C.S. Lewis's own prayers, an anointing by a priest, and his specific prayer that Joy Davidman, who had just married, that the cancer in her bones, that he be able to take on some of her pain so that they could live together as husband and wife for a while. And during the two or three years before her cancer returned, her bones regained marrow, according to the doctors and x-rays, her bones regained marrow at the same time that C.S. Lewis developed a bone disease that took marrow away from his bones. Is that a miracle? Well, it's a remission. It's a diagnosis in C.S. Lewis's case, but it's certainly a miracle of timing. I mean, once again, what are the odds? I know people who believe they were cured of infertility in responsibility, in response to prayers. They tried everything, they tried everything, they tried everything. A priest prayed over them, and the church began praying for them, and suddenly, without explanation, they were pregnant. Miracle? People tend to accept that as a miracle of timing, an intervention by God. But did it violate a natural law? Probably not. You can get into lengthy discussions of visions, and the actual vision that begins the Lord pilgrimages would fall into this category. I've had friends who have had moments in their life where they heard what's described in the CBS report, the 60 Minutes report, that they heard what they called an interior voice that they could not explain, and that it was clearly not their own psychology talking to them, where they heard the, what they believed was the voice of God. Years ago, back in Denver, the closest I ever came to being allowed to write a miracle story was the story of an elderly Episcopal priest from Japan who had been raised as the son of a samurai, and then he became the doctors thought fatally ill. This was before World War II. And while he was in a coma, he believes a man in white came to him and said, I am Jesus. I have come for you. He woke up, got better, and for the rest of his life said, that was a vision. It changed my life. It saved my life. I came back from the dead. It was a near-death experience. And he had been exposed to the Bible in an English literature class a couple of years earlier, but other than that had no exposure to Christianity. He called that a miracle. Was it a violation of natural law? No. Was he healed at an interesting timing, waking up from this near-death experience? Certainly. Was he right to call that a miracle? 
Well, it'd be hard to argue with something that changed a man's life, and he lived into his 90s and made it to 100 years of age, if I remember correctly, and gave his entire life to ministry after that moment in his life. So you can see what I'm getting at here. You've got a lot of different ways people use this term. I would argue that a lot of the debates about conversion therapy related to LGBTQ issues and trans issues, frequently you end up with people talking about what they believe to have been a cure or what they believe was a cure that didn't happen or that what the Catholics frequently call the healing of memories or the ability to forgive someone or they consider themselves bisexual and they believe God gave them the ability, the strength to lead, etc., etc. So I could go on and on with this, but this particular report on CBS was a very detailed and respectful look at one specific type of miracle claim. And I think it was quite remarkable, and I recommend that people watch it so that to some degree they can see what would it look like if mainstream journalists at the level of 60 minutes offered this kind of respect to other stories involving claims of the miraculous or the intervention of God in the sense of all those different definitions and all those other ways of looking at it that I just kind of outlined. What would happen if you tried to listen to the voices of religion, the way things happened in this particular report? I think it would open up some very unique stories for the mainstream press to attempt to cover. So, Terry, did the 60 Minutes piece get into the role that miracles, and in particular these Marian miracles, the Virgin Mary, play in Catholic theology? No, they really didn't, and that's an interesting question. I think it's safe to assume that they believe that Protestants, Catholics, the Orthodox, whatever, would hear about Lourdes and would say, oh, right, that's a Mary thing. That's a St. Mary. That's the Virgin Mary. That's one of those. And would kind of just assume that that's a Catholic thing. And it would have required a completely different type of report to pause and say, okay, wait a minute. Why do Muslims have shrines to the Virgin Mary? And why do Muslims in the Middle East make claims that Mary has cured people of infertility? I know of a particular shrine related to that. Why do the Eastern Orthodox believe this? They could then go to, let's take a liberal expression of Christian faith, like the Episcopal Church, which has a prominent use of symbolism involving Mary, but you could talk to liberal Episcopalians along with, say, charismatic slash evangelical Episcopalians, and you might find that they would be either comfortable or uncomfortable with claims of the miraculous related to the Virgin Mary for completely different reasons. I mean, they might be uncomfortable with discussions of the miraculous at all. Like I tried to explain earlier, kind of how this is dealt with within orthodoxy, 
then that leads you from the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, as we would say in the Eastern Church. You're led from that to the issue of the saints and the fact that you have miracle-working saints all through the ancient church and through various forms of the ancient church. And of course, when you say that these are wonder-working saints, no one is claiming that the saints perform the miracles. What we're attempting to say is that in some mysterious way, people ask these saints to join them in prayer to God, and God acted. And some saints become associated with certain types of healing or certain types of comfort for people who are struggling with different issues. There are saints even whose prayers are associated with healings, once again, different, various definitions of healings, to certain types of illness, certain types of addiction even, and different types of struggles in life. So you can see we're getting into a much larger subject here. I think it would be fascinating to find out if in the world of, say, Pentecostal Christianity inside the Assemblies of God or some of the the great African-American churches of Pentecostalism, such as the Churches of God in Christ. It'd be interesting to know what kind of imagery and visions are associated with miracles in their experiences. If you're raised with images of the Virgin Mary as a major part of your faith, does that affect how you interpret God attempting to work in your life. It's an interesting story. I could ask you right back, within Lutheranism at this stage, either liberal or conservative, how comfortable are people talking about the intervention of the Virgin Mary in terms of sharing in prayers for healing? We certainly believe, I'll speak for my branch of Lutheranism, that the saints who've gone before us, including Mary, pray for us, but we don't believe in invoking the saints' prayers. We strongly affirm the virginity of Mary. There is some debate as to how long that virginity persisted after the birth of Christ. And we, along with Roman Catholics and Orthodox, do refer to her boldly as the mother of God. There's no other way to talk about her. She certainly is the mother mm -hmm. of God. And we highly revere her because we are told in Scripture that all men shall call her blessed. Yeah. So we have no problem referring to her as the blessed virgin at all. Making the statement that she's the mother of God is a statement about Christology. Absolutely. More than it's a statement about Marianology. And a lot of Protestants don't understand that. I was discussing this, these issues with someone just yesterday involving a conversation with a Protestant. And she said, well, we would never feel comfortable praying to people who are dead. At which point you begin to say, um, are they dead? I mean, are, they're, they're a part of the body of Christ, and the Bible says that since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you know, maybe they can witness, but they can't hear. I mean, and, and we, would, we would stress that we are always asking the saints to pray with us the way we would call up the two or three most devout friends you have, people whose prayers you seek and respect, we call them up and ask them to pray with us. That doesn't mean we're not praying to Christ directly ourselves, because Christ tells us to do that. 
But we've got this whole mystery of the saints and how different people interpret it. And so, yeah, that's a part of this story of Lourdes and the other Catholic investigated and approved investigations of appearances of Our Lady. And the Catholics tend to be picky about that and very stringent in how they investigate these things. Other branches of Christianity, less so. And like I say, a lot of that depends on how you're using the term miracle. Back to the bouquet of flowers I mentioned earlier. I mean, the priest involved in that case didn't call up the local media and say, hey, come by with your cameras and see the miraculous flowers. This was something that people just talked about and took encouragement from in their congregation. And a member of the congregation, a nationally known bioethicist, wrote a blog post about it and that those flowers have continued to be discussed in the years since then. But I mean, it wasn't on 60 Minutes. It wasn't turned into something like that. And my conviction in my own experience is that most of the time when people wrestle with these miracles, with these mysteries of things in their lives, it's more of a quiet thing between them and God. <laughs> if I could make a Narnia quote from C.S. Lewis, in The Horse and His Boy, there's a moment where the great lion Aslan, who is the Christ of the Narnia stories in the world of Narnia, is walking with a troubled boy, and he says, look, I tell you your story. I don't tell you everybody else's story. I'm here to talk about what's happening in your life and what I'm trying to do there. And for me, I think that comes closer to how the Orthodox deal with claims of the miraculous and it's certainly something you talk to your priest about and your spiritual father, and you wrestle with it. It becomes a mystery that becomes a part of God's work in your life. Terry, with 30 seconds, when watching this 60 Minutes episode on demand, what should we be looking for as wise media consumers of religion news? Look for the way they allowed the doctors and the scientists to give their own kind of testimony about what happened in the case of Sister Bernadette and these others, and then listen to Sister Bernadette and say, what we have here is two different ways of talking about the same experience and the same story. And journalists should be open to hearing both of those kinds of voices because it's a part of the story and of this woman's life. And this really happened. So talk about it. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. And he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.